one book that's really just a small library of 66 different books penned by 40 different men, but truly written and inspired by one divine author. Its contents covers 1,400 years spanned by seven different genres, 1,182 chapters, 31,102 verses. Three ancient languages used, translated though, just shy into 700 different languages. Nearly 2,000 translations with the use of 5,600 original manuscripts and copies with one intent, one purpose, one design to tell you about a God who is real, who is living, who is active, sovereign, creator of the universe, whose promises are real, whose promises are true. That there was a man, fully God, fully man, who was born of a supernatural birth, performed supernatural acts, broke down the walls of injustice and built bridges of restoration. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who willingly gave of his own life to the point of death on a cross, like a lamb led to the slaughter, so that his grace, that his message may transform lives and society for eternities to come. A single source that reveals God's divine will for your life and for the world around you. Wouldn't you want to know what it says? I want to thank you for joining us this morning here at First. However you may be joining us, we're glad that you are with us. Today we are in week three of a teaching series called Rhythm, in which we're talking about how to dance, how to move with the Holy Spirit. And this whole series is built upon this passage from Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. It's this, it says that since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That idea of keeping in step, it's kind of like dancing. It's finding the rhythm. It's finding the groove to walking in a life with God. Now, if I'm honest with you for a second, I'm not a rhythm guy. This past year, my wife and I on vacation, we took tango lessons and and there's bruises and, and toes stepped on to prove that it's just not my thing. But over and over, the, the instructor just kept coming up to me and saying, you need, to, you need to feel the rhythm. You need to feel the rhythm of the music. And I'm just over here being like, bro, I ain't feeling nothing, right? So, so maybe you're like me. Maybe you've got some students around your house, you know, learning, trying to get you to learn some of those new TikToks, whatever it is. We all understand that there is a rhythm to dancing, but also that there is a rhythm to life. Last week, Danny gave us a great message on prayer. If you haven't had the opportunity to listen to that message, I encourage you sometime this week to take a moment and to listen to the encouraging power of that message. And so we're continuing in this series, and we're going to ask the question similar to last week, but for a different topic. We're talking about the Bible. I want to ask this question for this morning, and it's this. It's why should I read the Bible? 
Now, whether you're just exploring faith or you've been a Christian for a long time, that's probably a question you've asked before. Why should I even read the Bible? Why should I study it? Why should I listen to it? Here's the thing, though. I think there's a little more foundational of a question that we need to start with. That before we learn why I should read it, or maybe even how should I read it, I think there's a question that a lot of us wrestle with. Perhaps you've been asked this question as a Christian, as a disciple, or maybe you're asking this question, trying to discern whether or not this God is real, that this Jesus person truly desires a relationship with you. And it's this question. It's why should I trust the Bible in the first place? So just pretend with me for a moment. Let's just say I, I appeared into, your, into your, your room next to you and we're sipping on some Folgers and I just leaned over. I said, hey, tell me for a second. Why do you believe the Bible? Why do you trust what it says? See, my time as a pastor has taught me whenever people are confronted with that question, they tend to respond in, in, in one of three ways. The first way I hear a lot is, is typically this. They say, well, that's just kind of how I grew up. You know, I, I went to VBS, mom and dad read me the stories before bed. Grandma and grandpa used to, you know, uh, bust out the old dusty copy of, of the King James Version around the dinner table at times. But here's the thing. Just because someone grows up with something, it doesn't mean that it's, that it's fundamentally true. Sometimes people respond to that, this question of why should I trust the Bible with this? Well, I trust the Bible because the Bible says so. Well, here's the thing. How can you prove something to be true or reliable with the thing that you're trying to prove to be true or reliable? It's what we call circular reasoning, right? You see, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you believe in the authority of Scripture like we do here at first, I get that answer. But let me tell you, that's not an uber-compelling reason of why someone struggling, trying to discern whether this is the Word of God, the bread of life, if this should be trusted. The third answer is usually something like this. I've tried it, and it works for me. Now, I get the heart behind that message. I get that you've, you've paid, maybe gotten to that point because the power of the word of God has, has dramatically changed your life. But at best, that's an answer that's emotional. It's, it's relative. It's a little bit pragmatic. With that same line of thinking, all someone has to just say is, well, if it's a different belief, a different religion, a different God, a different truth, as long as it works, then who are you to say that there is only one true God, one true form of truth, one true way of eternity? It's a little bit dangerous because our culture is continuing to perpetuate that narrative. Find your truth, discover your path, live out your truths in your life as you see fit. Now, I'll be honest with you. Those aren't terrible answers, but they're probably not super convincing ones either. So let's spend a few moments before we get into why or how should I study and read the Bible for myself Let's take a few moments to look at maybe why I should trust the Bible in the first place.
I want to invite you to turn with me to to 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is going to kind of set up a little bit of this first part of the message this morning. Peter is one of the apostles of Jesus. He's the rock of the Jerusalem church. He's he's writing to these Christians and he gives these words. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, he says this. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses. That's a key word for us today. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter just kind of starts here, right? And he says, hey guys, I'm just going to remind you that this, this isn't some cleverly devised story that we all got into a room and made up. He's, when he's saying, this isn't a myth. This isn't something that we just came up with. You see, what happens sometimes is people find these passages in, in like the gospels, for example, and they say, well, how come one gospel writer says there was one angel that spoke and the other gospel writer says, but there were two angels there. Well, which is it? Was there two angels there or was there one angel that spoke? Now, first and foremost, I'm going to tell you, just because there is two angels there, it doesn't mean there was maybe just the one who spoke. But secondly, what that tells me is is, is the writers of Scripture is they're going off eyewitness accounts. What they didn't do is is get into a room and say, okay, we got to recount this story, okay? Uh Uh-huh, and then John, what do you say? And Mark, okay, okay, yeah, 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 okay. Is it one or is it two? We just got to pick one, guys. Let's make sure these stories match. Instead, they're saying, this is what we heard. This is what we saw, the eyewitness accounts. See, it's that word eyewitness that's important, not just for scripture, but for all of of accuracy of history. It's this thing called historicity. It's the way in which we determine that someone or something is historically accurate or reliable. Let me give you an example uh, here this morning. I want you to play along with me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the picture of someone and I want you to just shout it out, maybe say it to someone who's sitting on the couch next to you, who this person is. Ready? You got it? Right? You got a penny, a $5 bill? Right? Abraham Lincoln grew up in the Midwest, honest Abe, never told a lie. He probably told a lie at some point in his life, but that's what he's known for, right? He, he returned a library book in the middle of the snow so it wouldn't be late. He was our 16th president, the Gettysburg Address, the Emancipation Proclamation. June, Juneteenth is, is coming up this week. Now, 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 let me just ask you for a moment. How do you know that this is Abraham Lincoln? Were you there? Have you seen him with his own eyes? Were you in the crowd for those speeches? You say, no. Our history textbooks tell us this. Why? Because of historicity. Eyewitness accounts, copies of speeches, people who were there and confirming with other sources saying, this was that man. He was that president. He gave those speeches. He he performed those offices. That is Abraham Lincoln. So in the same way, 
same manner in which we affirm that this is Honest Abe, the 16th president of the United States, we can confirm the authenticity of the words in this book. Let me give you just a few examples of the historicity that we can use to say this is why we can trust the words on these pages. That they're archaeologists, as they're studying the ancient Middle East, they use the book of Acts, the fifth book in the New Testament, to determine topography and timelines in their findings. Now we have more copies and with greater accuracy of the New Testament manuscripts than Aristotle, Homer, and Plato combined. There are 25,000 different digs and sites that confirm places and people and instances of scripture. And here's the thing that gets me the most is that the writers of the New Testament, the writers of scripture, they had no motive other than being inspired by God. Because all of these men, they were hung, they were crucified, quartered, stoned, beheaded, stranded, martyred. And they're oftentimes self-deprecating. Let me ask you, if you were recounting a story about yourself, wouldn't you kind of make yourself a little bit better? Wouldn't you gloss over the mistakes you made? Not with these words. Because the point of these words is to point to one man and one man only. So why should I trust the Bible? Not because I grew up with it. Not because the Bible says so. Not because it worked for me but because it's a reliable historical document based on eyewitness accounts of eyewitness accounts to tell of the supernatural events in which the writers had no self-perpetuating motive. So again, wouldn't you want to know what a document like that has to say? See, God's word lays the beat to God's rhythm. That's what scripture is trying to communicate to us, that God, our sovereign Lord, has an intent and a desire for creation, that he created in shalom, that everything was in perfect harmony and unity, but sin broke it and it seemed to be overpowering, but he sent a savior and that savior reigns and that salvation has been delivered to anyone of any race, any gender, any era, any, any background, as long as they have faith in Jesus, this document tells us, this book describes to us that faith that we can now have in the name of Jesus. The Bible is, it's, it's powerful. Get this, not because it's a book, but because it's about a person. And the person that it's about, spoiler alert here, it's not you. It's about Jesus. It's not these, these golden nuggets of wisdom. It's not trying to turn you into a good person. It's trying to show you that there is one God who loves you so much 
that he gave of his one and only son so that you might be rescued from the bondage, from the slavery, from the yoke, the burden of your sin so that you may live eternally with him. We have an Old Testament that teaches us about the law and the prophets and the kings. They're basically trying to say, this is God's standard. And guess what? You don't really match up. You're going to need someone to kind of mend that gap for you. And we have the New Testament that gives us the life of Jesus, that, that gives us that person who mends that gap, who crosses that bridge for us. And everyone points back to him saying, so because of this man, because of this work, because of that cross, because of that re- resurrection, we We now have transformative life. This whole entire book tells us there is a a loving God, but because he is holy and because he is just, he has to satisfy his, his wrath against sin. But he made a way through his son to provide redemption for all of his creation. It tells us, it tells us how the creator of the universe values every life of every race. It tells us how Jesus broke down barriers of of gender dysphoria and how Jesus built bridges of restoration. It compels us to move, to act. It shows us a God who out of his love found everyone, 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 regardless of their background, regardless of the color of their skin, their political views, where they grew up, how they grow up, how much money they have, regardless of all of that, that they are worthy of that same love, grace, and truth. That every man, every woman is made in the image of God. But we have a sin problem, a sin that we all live with, that's distorted our lives, has broken our worlds, and affects everything that's going around, uh, around us on a daily and regular basis. But there's good news always there is savior, that there is redemption in the name of Jesus. But here's the thing, and and, and I need you to get this. We're not just called to believe this to be true. We're not just called to say, yeah, 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 I, I agree with what's in here. We're not called to hold it up and just say, yeah, yeah, this, this thing, it's, it's got some good stuff in it. No, no, we're not just called to believe it. We're called to obey and live out its commands in our lives. If we claim to walk in Jesus, to have faith in his resurrecting power. You see, let me put it this way. We need to dance not just recognize the song. Like, think about it for a moment. You're, you're, you're cruising down the road and your favorite song comes on and, and you, know, you bump it up a few notches and you start kind of uh, you know, reciting some of the, the lines, some of the verses. But what the Bible's kind of telling you is like, but is it grooving with you? Is it changing how you walk? Is it changing how you strut? Is it changing how you go about life? Or are you just saying, I recognize that song? 
I know a few of those lyrics. Or are you actually dancing to that rhythm? See, this is where Jesus got into it with the Pharisees oftentimes. The Pharisees were the ones who would say, yeah, yeah, that's God's song. That's God's law. That's God's intent for creation. And Jesus comes in and says, yeah, but you ain't dancing to it, bro. Has it changed your life? Has it changed how you treat people? What have you actually done with it? You see, we're not just called to say, this is the rhythm of God's life. We're called to say, this is the rhythm of my life and it's time for me to dance with the spirit every day because he lives with me. See, the goal of God's word isn't just information up here. It's transformation in here. That God did, didn't just send his son Jesus to die on a cross and save you a seat in heaven someday. That he sent him to redeem you and all people and all creation back to his intended creation intent. That's why Jesus' brother, yeah, Jesus had a brother. Probably doesn't want to admit it. You know, imagine being Jesus' brother. If you could only be more like Jesus, right? You probably heard that all the time. He even says these words about not just reading, but doing what the word of God says. In James chapter one, verses 22 through 25, this is what he says. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. He says it's like a mirror. It's like looking at yourself in a mirror. Just, 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 just having it, just holding it, just, just reading it, listening to it is one thing. He says, you don't need just to do that. You need to obey it. You need to live it out. It needs to change how you treat people, how you respond to people, how you interact with people. It needs to transform your life. And he says, if you do, if you obey, you will be blessed. Let me talk really quickly about that word blessed. That word blessed, it's literally in reference to doing the obedience. That we find blessing, we find enjoyment in living out the commands of God. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves. To live out the fruit of the Spirit. And on and on again, that blessing is a blessing that we find in obedience in action, not just knowing it, but living it. See, there's a blessing when we put God's word into motion in our life, when we begin to dance to God's rhythm. It's not a blessing of health. It's not a blessing of wealth. It's not a blessing of, uh, of prosperity or good fortune. It's a blessing of freedom. It's a blessing of obedience. It's a blessing in being in step with the Spirit, producing that fruit of love so that people may know we are His and so they may taste and see that the Lord is good. What James is trying to say here is he's saying that the, the, the Bible has made it clear 
the intent of God's word is clear. That it's about what Jesus has done for you leads you to do a new way of life. Sometimes we flip this backwards. Sometimes we, we hear things or, or we mistakenly believe it. We say, well, if I do enough, then God will, will bless me. He will have to have make things done in my life. I will receive his promises. And what James is saying, what scripture says is, no, 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 no. You cannot do enough. You cannot earn. You cannot make yourself good enough so that God has to move in your life. Rather, it says, it has been done. It has been taken care of out of the love, the grace, the mercy of God through the work of Jesus. It has been done. And what has been done, if you believe in faith, will transform you and lead you to live it out. See, the Bible, it's, it's, it's not trying to tell you how to be a good person. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. It's trying to tell you that you're not, that on your own strength, you can't be. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus had to live a perfect life, perform miracles to show his deity, but at the same time, willingly take his last breath on a cross, triumph over sin and death through the resurrection of the grave. And then he hears those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So that Jesus can turn around and say, look at what I have done for you. Now, will you do for me? It's a story and the reality that we have all fallen short. But the good news is that even though we are not good enough, Jesus was on our behalf. Jesus didn't come to make salvation possible for those who do their part, who work hard, who pull themselves up by their, their Christian bootstraps. The Bible tells us you can't, you won't. You're gonna fall short. That's why God says, in my love, I send you my son. I don't wanna make you a good moral person, God is saying, rather, a redeemed member of the kingdom of God that moves and speaks as the word of God speaks, whose heart breaks when the heart of God breaks, who wants to see love and reconciliation across the madness of his life so that the intent of God's shalom can be again. So why should we read the Bible? How do we find out what has been done that leads us to do? The apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor, Timothy. First and second Timothy are these letters and he gives us two great uh, passages to kind of help us understand the power of God's word and understanding what has been done for us. In second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17, Paul encourages Timothy with this. He says, all scripture, is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 4, he continues or, or, or precursor to this a few pages ahead of time. He gives us these words though. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales 
Rather, train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. The Bible is the inspired word of God, useful for teaching, for building us up for every good work. We're not just called to know this book, to recite this book. We are called to be transformed by this book, to do what it says. To see our lives transformed by their faith in Jesus. To see our communities transformed by our outward compassion. To see racial tensions dissolved because of the image of God across all people to see the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb proclaimed, to see the destruction of temptation and wickedness have no grip on lives who believe in the power of Jesus, to see the the conversations of identity met with both grace and truth because of love. It's a book, it's a story about a loving God who paid the price on his own so that we might be with him. And here's the thing, you can dance with God's word whenever and wherever. You don't need a building. You don't need lights. You don't need padded seats. Get this, in some ways you don't even need me. You need this and the power of the spirit living in you. Grab a few people who believe with you and you can encourage and challenge one another that your maturation as a disciple, the way in which you grow in your faith, you can say, you know, I want to cut my own steak. You can take the the, the bottle of the feed me mentality of our church lives, toss that aside and say, where's my bib? Where's my steak knife? Because I'm ready to dive into the word of God. It is mine. He is with me. But it's a training that we have to do over and over and over again. The number one comment I I give to people when they say, Eric, I want to get into reading the Bible. I want to study the Bible. What do I do? And I always just tell them this, just do it. It's like a skill that you have to do over and over and over to get comfortable at using. It's a tool that the more you use it, the more comfortable it feels. It's a muscle that you have to work out day after day after day in order for it to get stronger. Where do I start? Where do I begin? It starts with just dancing with God. So for those of us who consider ourselves a disciple, let me close with these words from the apostle John in 1 John chapter 5. He says this, he says, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son 
of God. So if you're asking yourself, how do I begin to dance with the word of God? Let me give you this final thought. Start with a dance that works for you. Right? You're learning to dance. You're not going to jump into break dancing on your forehead or trying to tango. Start with something a little easier, the cha-cha slide or maybe some whip and nene in there, right? Start with a dance that works for you. We have a resource page that I want to point you to this morning. It's this, fcc-online.org forward slash resources. It's going to help you understand different ways to read the Bible, different ways to help you understand and apply the word of God to your life. Here's the thing, you just gotta do it. Start today and begin that dance with God. So as we move to our time of response this morning, there's something that we need to remind ourselves of the power of the word of God. It continually tells us that we have one. One Lord, one Savior, one baptism, one God who created us all. One love who redeems us under the same blood. So this morning, we invite you to respond with us as we continue to worship in a few different ways. The first thing we encourage you to do is if you feel compelled to respond in generosity, we encourage you to check out our Give app whether that's for your tithes and offering, some of our friends in Nepal, or our local food response with the COVID relief, you can find all the info at this app, the Give app, G-Y-V-E. And you can look up First Christian Church Champaign or Urbana to find out more how to be involved in the generosity of First. But also right now, we invite you to respond with us to what the word of God commands us to do in remembrance of Jesus. On Jesus' last night with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, take and eat. And then he held up the cup and he held up the juice. And he said, this is my blood spilt for you, take and drink. He said, do these in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me as we respond to the word of God this morning? God, you are good. You are great. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. May you be with us as we seek to live for your name. It's your name that we pray.